Hey, Cheek listeners, this is the second part of Praying on Hope. If you missed the first part, that means you're trying to skip a week. And why would you do us like that? Nah, it's cool. No hard feelings. But ordinarily, skipping a week would work. But since this is a two-parter, you'll want to listen to the first episode, which dropped last week on the feed. And if you did listen to the first part, I'm sorry you had to sit through all of this. Enjoy the episode. Looking back at it, there are things that were questionable, but we hadn't been through the process before. This is Adam Bells Thomas. In early 2017, he and his husband, Kyle Bells Thomas, were working with Tara Lee to adopt their first child. She had given us a set amount of what the birth mother fees were going to be, and then that money ran out as it got closer to the adoption. And she needed a little bit more money here and needed a little bit money there. And out of fear of losing this baby because there's no rules or there's no contract or there's nothing behind it. We were like, okay, yeah, here's another $500. Here's another $600. Adam and Kyle connected with Tara through Facebook. It was a little bit of a reunion. Kyle had also gone to middle school with her. And when they met Tara, they were struck by how personable she was. She was covered in tattoos. She swore like a sailor. You wouldn't expect your adoption liaison to be dropping F-bombs, but... Somehow, she was still a total professional. She explained the adoption process clearly, and she had all the documents. And then, within a couple weeks, she had a match. Adam and Kyle met the birth mother. They went to doctor's appointments. They kept in regular contact with Tara, and she was with them every step of the way. That summer of 2017, Adam and Kyle adopted their son, Maxwell. And overall... Sure, there had been some hiccups, but it had been a pretty smooth process. It was after Max's adoption that things got weird. She reached out to us. Max was... Not even a year. And we called that Max's birth mom was pregnant again. And she wanted us to have the baby. So that is even the only reason that we even got back involved again was that it was Max's biological sibling. We went back and forth and we're like, listen, we have a six-month-old. Like, we don't really need another baby right now. And one of the things that has stuck with me forever is she said, you know, I understand that you guys have bills and things you want to pay, but what are you going to tell your son down the road when he finds out that he has a sibling that you could have adopted, but you didn't want to because you wanted to pay bills? Tara knew exactly what to say. She was pushing all the right emotional buttons. We believed her. We listened to her. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're totally right. What would we tell him? kind of thing. And then from that day forward, it's almost like she was completely running the show as when it came to how she manipulated and made our decisions be what she wanted. Tara used her job to create a situation that was in her best interest. To Tara, making matches was not about the families involved or about the babies. Matches just became a way to make money. She found a way to manipulate the adoption process in order not to just get her cut, but to significantly profit. And, as you'll find out very soon, she wasn't about to give up her con easily. I'm Alzo Slade. From something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, we're back with the second part of Praying on Hope, how one person gamed the private adoption process for personal profit. The number of private infant adoptions have been declining since the 1970s. 
There are a number of reasons to explain it. Most of them, cultural shifts around single parenthood and birth control. So if you're planning to adopt, you gotta be prepared to wait a while. And there aren't a lot of options for prospective families. It can be really expensive too. So it requires planning, money, and a whole lot of patience. Which is why when Tara Lee was able to make matches so quickly, it was exciting. It was like she had a cheat code. Ah, y'all see what I did there, didn't you? All right. You didn't laugh, but cheating or not, Tara's quick results gave people hope. My name is Courtney Edmond. I live in Colorado. Courtney was another client of Tara's. They connected on Facebook and became fast friends. There was a point where the two talked daily. Tara would complain about the demands of her job, and Courtney offered to help. I felt like we were friends. And I would tell her, well, you need to hire help. And she's like, well, I don't trust anybody. She's like, but I would trust you. And, I, and so I would say, okay, well, f- pay for my plane ticket, and I'll come help you for a few days. Courtney started traveling to Michigan to support Tara. And in Michigan, Courtney saw how Tara interacted with the birth mother she worked with. She did not treat them very nicely. She didn't speak to them nice. She was very controlling with every aspect of their lives. Up until now, we've been primarily focusing on the stories of adoptive families. But of course, that ignores a very important group of people in this adoption mix, the birth mothers. The women who made the very difficult decision to carry their pregnancies to term and make an adoption plan. It's usually the adoptive parents that are the loudest voices in this conversation. And I don't say that to be rude. It's just that they're often in a better position to talk about what happened. And we want to acknowledge that since we won't be hearing directly from a birth mother today, we won't be able to give their narrative full justice. But their perspective is integral to the story. So we talked to the best advocate we could find. There are different reasons for everybody. And some of these reasons have serious penalties or, you know, serious repercussions if they start telling their story. This is Maria Panchenko. She's an attorney who represented a number of birth mothers who worked with Tara Lee. She started working with Tara in the spring of 2018. And Maria also had to dig through Tara's email along with the adoptive family's attorneys that we heard from in part one. And that search revealed that Tara had been matching multiple families to birth mothers, and inventing birth mothers. But when Maria started calling families to inform them about Tara's scam, even more of Tara's actions came to light. It was later when we unfortunately had to call all these people and tell them that they had been defrauded, that we started learning really the depths of how she dealt with birth mother expenses and how that part of her scam worked because there was multiple layers of what she was doing that was completely illegal. Birth mother expenses. That was money that the prospective adoptive family paid to help support a birth mother during the pregnancy. Rent, doctor's appointments, bills, all of these essentials that the birth mothers needed. But since there's no federal law when it comes to how these expenses are handled, it goes state by state. There's not a cap on how much a birth mother expense could be in Michigan. That law probably should be rewritten, but there's a safeguard in the statute that allows like only for certain types of expenses. Like I can't be going and buying somebody a car, but you know, you are definitely allowed to help them with their 
utility bills and stuff like that. And as we found out in the last episode, Tara was charging a whole lot to the adoptive families, but was paying out very little to the birth families. In fact, it's fair to say that those essentials often weren't being covered. I can't imagine a scenario where all of the money that was paid for a birth mother's expense went to that birth mother. No, absolutely not. Meanwhile, Tara would turn and blame it on the birth mothers. She'd tell them that they'd spend all the money, and then she'd pretend to buy food or gas with her own money. But that wasn't the only thing Tara was lying about to the birth mothers. Tara promised these women that she was a social worker. So that, first off, she was not a social worker. And that obviously is a breach of extreme trust because these women thought they were talking to somebody who was licensed to give them therapy and guide them through a very difficult time in their lives. There would be no therapy, no support. In fact, it was the opposite. Tara gained the birth mother's trust and then abused it. She lied about being a counselor and a doula. She was even performing physical exams, which she is absolutely not qualified or licensed to do. And Tara subjected the birth mothers to really difficult situations. She'd find them places to live that were deplorable. Gosh, there were so many other instances of terrible things. Their rent wasn't getting paid. And they were getting calls from their landlord, and they were begging her for money so that they could do this, that, or the other thing. That you know, They'd beg her for money for food. Tara gained control over their lives. She would sometimes give the women food and shelter. She knew that some of these women were already in custody battles over their children. Tara used that knowledge to manipulate them. All of them needed money. And so Tara gave. And then Tara took. And took a lot. I remember very specifically asking several of my clients, why didn't you come to me and say something or whatever? And they told us we weren't allowed to talk to you unless it had to do with the paperwork. And that if we needed something, we had to talk to her and we believed her. Tara isolated the birth mothers most of whom were already in pretty financially and emotionally vulnerable positions to begin with, which is also why many of the birth mothers involved here aren't willing to speak about these experiences. Some are involved in other custody battles that would put their case at risk. Some are just trying to get on with their lives. But there was also that feeling that a lot of people weren't going to really listen anyways. But the extent of Tara's cheating the birth mothers had largely remained hidden. Not only because Tara was manipulating birth mothers so they'd be loyal to her, but also by preventing any communication between birth mothers and prospective families that didn't involve her. She would pit the families against the birth mothers and the birth mothers against the families. So she would make it so that they didn't communicate so that she wouldn't be found out. But there was one person who got a little closer to seeing how she operated, and that was Courtney. Tara was also trying to facilitate an adoption for Courtney and her family. The first adoption through Tara had failed. It had been a very painful experience for Courtney, and she was ready to take a break. But then there was the prospect of a second adoption. It started with a pregnant woman reaching out to Courtney, who was reluctant. But then Tara got involved. She gladly took on the intermediary role, like she did in all the matches. But Courtney stayed in touch with the birth mom, and she found out about the accommodations, or lack thereof, Tara provided for her and her children. In Michigan, a house with no heat. She was sleeping on the floor with her children. She had three kids. She was actually keeping her food in the snow to stay cold. 
Nobody should have to live like that, especially a pregnant woman. Courtney gave Tara more money to help get the birth mother in a better situation. It's doubtful, though, that it ever made it to the birth mother. Because when Courtney was in Michigan with Tara, she started to see how Tara spent her money. $10,000 is what I saw her spend in one shopping session. We went to Louis Vuitton, Balenciaga. I mean, all the name brand, high name brand places. I mean, and they all knew her. The second she walked in, they said, oh, it's Tara. And they would all flock to her. And they all knew that she would be spending money. So it seems like Tara's around town being more of a socialite than a social worker. Courtney wasn't just exposed to Tara's high-rolling shopping habits. She also got a dose of her emotional manipulation, even though they were supposed to be friends, even though they were also supposed to have a professional relationship. Tara crossed boundaries. And when Courtney had doubts about the first adoption match, Tara had pushed her to embrace it. There were a couple times during the pregnancy that I told her I wanted out. There was a couple times and it was Tara telling me, hey, you need to have a uh, gender reveal party now that you know the sex. You need to start buying stuff. You need to do this. And she's like, I challenge you by the end of the week to have a nursery ready, to have this ready, to have clothes ready. And, and I listened to her. Like, I trusted her. The manipulation and the abuse, it just got worse. When Courtney's second adoption had also failed, when the birth mother decided to change her adoption plan, Tara took it out on Courtney. She blamed me. She's like, you sabotaged your adoption. I can't believe you did this again. You had another fail. But she said, she said, I knew this was going to be a guaranteed adoption. She's like, but you did this. You, you messed it up yourself. That was the last time Courtney talked to Tara. But it was not the last time she talked about Tara. One of Tara's things she would tell every single family was, my adoptions don't fail. She actually even told me that in all the years that she had done this, I was only the second family to ever have a failed adoption with her. On Facebook, Courtney found another parent with a failed adoption through Tara and Always Hope. They started swapping stories about Tara. Courtney talked about the shopping trips and other things that happened while she was with Tara in Michigan. And it wasn't long before they both realized that something weird was going on. And then Courtney had another adoption fall through with Tara. We knew that something wasn't right. Well, we knew before, but like the second adoption failing was definitely the icing on the cake. And that's when they started the secret Facebook group. The same one that Teresa and Mike Matheny from our first episode joined. Within one day, we had, I think, four families. Within just a couple days, we had nine families. In one month, we had 20 families. And then within a couple months, we had 100 families. This is the group that discovered that Tara had matched multiple families with one birth mom, had invented birth mothers, and had taken lots and lots of money from people and never given any of it back. It was this group that had reached out to the lawyer, Talia, and the FBI about Tara. All of us working together, we were able to get a hold of the FBI. We were able to find that her license was not legit. We were able to find that she had prior wire fraud charges. These people who had been scanned by Tara were now actively involved in her investigation. And a lot of them were in touch with the lead prosecutor on the case and the FBI agent. Whenever any of us would find something out, we would call him and be like, hey, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? So we kind of all worked together. So when the FBI raided Tara's home, there were a lot of people who weren't even shocked. 
I mean, they were the folks feeding the FBI for the investigation. But there were some, like Kyle and Adam Bells Thomas, who still believed in Tara. No, there's no way. Tara isn't like that. These families, maybe they're just having bad luck and blaming Tara for it. Tara was the one who was actually helping them grow families, right? More after the break. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tara, innocent? Maybe it's hard to believe that since we weren't living through it. But for Kyle and Adam Bells Thomas, yeah, they couldn't believe that the woman who had helped them adopt their son Max could actually be running a scheme. But first, we need to back up a bit. Remember when Tara had reached out to Kyle and Adam about adopting another child with Max's birth mom and told them that they'd regret it if they didn't? Well, when they agreed to adopt the baby who would be Max's biological sibling, they gave Tara nine grand up front. About a month later, Tara came back and asked for more. And it kept happening. They'd probably given her about $13,000 by the time the adoption fell through. Tara told them the birth mother's boyfriend wanted to keep the baby. So Kyle and Adam, they walked away. And their money? She assured them it would roll over. But this failed adoption understandably took a toll on Adam and Kyle. Not everyone understands adoption until you actually go through it. So all these other people are coming at us. Well, she can't just do that. She can't just back out. Where's your money? And you need to sue her. It's like, well, <laughs> there's no laws or anything that whatsoever that protects anything when you're doing a private adoption. If the mom changes her mind before she signs her, her paperwork or before the court hearing, you have to surrender the baby. So it was just very hard to maneuver through everybody that was asking us all the questions and why isn't this and aren't you angry? And yeah, it was, it was very, 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 very hard. But you know someone who would understand this process? Tara. I mean, she was an adoptive mom herself. She was someone Adam and Kyle talked to regularly. 
and she was determined to grow their family. This match had fallen through, but she'd make sure that their son Max would have a sibling. At this point, she was more of a friend than anything else. Her daughter babysat our son. Like, they'd been in our house. We invited them to his first birthday party. Like, her husband did our air conditioning unit and fixed it. Like, this wasn't just someone we knew in a business transaction. These were our friends. And so, like a good friend, Tara came back to Adam and Kyle again with yet another match. And of course, she needed $15,000 up front for birth mother expenses. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what happened to all of that rollover money? Adam and Kyle ended up having to walk away from this adoption too. They'd received zero communication about the pregnancy. So now, two failed matches. And then there was a third match. And again, no responses from Tara or the birth mother. They had no idea how the pregnancy was progressing and they needed answers. To find the birth mother, Kyle looked in the most obvious place, online. So Kyle found this woman's Facebook page, found her husband's, and then found another Facebook page of another family that was adopting her baby. And they had posts and they had pictures with the birth mom at events and different things and baby showers. And they had already adopted her previous baby and all of this. And so now we're finding this on Facebook that we're adopting this baby, but so is this other family. Oh, shit. So we went off on Tara, called her up, said, what is this? Tara said she had no idea that she was completely being, you know, played by this woman and how dare them and all of this stuff. Yeah, adoptions fail naturally, but this was their third failed adoption in just a matter of months. So after thousands of dollars spent for three failed adoptions in a short period of time, something ain't smelling right. And then right after that, Tara was raided by the FBI. Doesn't tell us for about a week, week and a half after the fact. That's sort of a big thing for Tara to keep quiet. When she tells us that she's being raided, she basically made it that she was being set up and that people were just after her and her business because she was doing so well and had stories for everything. And good stories, believable stories as to who was coming after her and why they were coming after her and everything that happened. Adam and Kyle believed her. They weren't in the Facebook group. And Tara had warned them that there were people trying to frame her, you know, telling lies about her. Basically, Tara is saying, all these haters out here are just mad because, you know, I'm successful. And this situation is starting to stink a lot. So much so that it's difficult to understand how Adam and Kyle couldn't smell it. But thinking about it from their perspective helps a little bit. They'd had a successful adoption with Tara. Thanks to Tara and the birth mother she matched them with, they had a son. Yeah, she was unconventional. She was difficult to get a hold of. And she was abrasive. But she also had helped Adam and Kyle grow their family. And besides, Tara had an explanation for everything. There would be no reason to believe that she'd be up to something so cruel. And at the time, there was no other evidence. She wasn't arrested. Never took her to jail. Their house was just raided. They took her information. She gave it up. No big deal. She had texts from her lawyer that said, do what you're doing. You haven't done anything illegal. They don't have anything on you. Go ahead. 
And as all this is going down, Tara's still working hard to arrange adoptions. In fact, get this, she had another match for Adam and Kyle. This would be their fourth match with her. Even after the raid, after the three failed adoptions, Adam and Kyle were inclined to believe Tara was legit. Some things seemed shady. We went back and forth. We weren't just blindly saying, oh yeah, she's completely innocent. But everything made sense. Everything that came up, every news article, she could be like, yeah, this isn't true. So now Tara's at work, organizing a fourth match for Adam and Kyle. I mean, what else are they going to do? There are estimates that there are at least a dozen folks ready to adopt for every one infant. Plus, they've already had success with Tara, and all they want is to grow their family. We weren't sure what was going on, but very reluctantly, we were like, yeah, like we'll do this. Again, you have all this proof that what you're doing isn't wrong. Also, people who knew and worked with Tara said she was amazingly convincing. Courtney, who had worked with her for years despite two failed adoptions, said... We call it the Tara trance. I pretty much believed everything she would say, help her do whatever I could help her do. The Tara trance? It must have been pretty powerful, because even though Tara's home had been raided, even though there were news reports, when she explained herself to Kyle and Adam, they were on her side. They believed her when she said she was innocent, and she was texting and calling Kyle two to three times a day, asking them, hey, I don't need you to just believe me. I need you to defend me, too. So Kyle stepped up to help. Sounds like that terror trance to me. At one point in time, he thought that she sounded suicidal. So he picked our son up from school and went over to her house to be with her to make sure she was okay. He was doing any bit of research that he could to get information about these parties who were accusing her of different things, of different things they could do, how she could countersue these people who were put defamation of her character and her name and trying to destroy her business. She had him wrapped around every one of her fingers. It was a few months later that Adam and Kyle got a text from Tara warning them that she was going to court. She assured them, this is nonsense. But they were rattled. According to her, this all had been nothing. So why was she going to court now? She went to court Friday morning, called my husband on the way to court, talked that morning. Uh, her court case was like, 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning, I was at work. They released the 32-page criminal report. I left work. I went and sat in the parking lot and read it. Every word of every 32 pages of that report. And everything in that report is everything that she did to us. Double matching families with an expectant mother. Fake birth mothers. Constant requests for money. It was everything they'd experienced during the last three adoption attempts with Tara. I called Kyle and I said, you need to read this because she did this. She did every bit of this to us. She is not innocent at all. And we have been so fooled to the point that we were telling our friends and our family and everyone we knew that she didn't do this. But Tara had already gotten to Kyle. She talked to Kyle. Kyle was at work doing something, so he couldn't read it. And so she called him again from 
her husband's cell phone because her phone had been confiscated in court. So she tells him that this is crazy. They've got all of these things that they're trying to accuse me of this stuff and talking to him and again trying to convince him that none of this is true don't believe it don't do this so when i called him he's like i already talked to her it's all fake and i'm like kyle you have the fbi and all of these agencies who have uncovered all of this information versus her stop for a sec we have to be realistic here and tara still trying to work her magic facetime both adam and kyle the night she had gone to court She was crying on the call. She said she was being attacked. She said that despite everything going on, that they should proceed with the fourth adoption attempt. (laughs) Yeah, you heard that right. She's under investigation. She's going to court, and she's still pushing this match. This woman just does not quit. Kyle and Adam are at a complete loss. They have no idea what to think. And... That wasn't the only call they got that evening that would rattle them. I think it was the same night we got a phone call or a text message from the lawyer, Talia. Yep, Talia Getting, the same attorney who we heard from in the first episode who processed adoptions with Tara, she had tried to contact Adam and Kyle after the FBI raided Tara's home. But they didn't want to talk to her. They thought she was part of the group trying to frame Tara. Initially, They wanted nothing to do with her. Now, they cautiously listened. So the next day, Saturday, Kyle calls Talia and says, I have nothing to say, but I'm going to hear you out. And the first sentence out of her mouth is, the adoption you're doing is all fake, which was our fourth adoption attempt. We had not said anything to anybody, but she knew we were doing it. And then all of a sudden was like, yeah, this is all fake. They ended up reaching out to the FBI and told them everything. For all these people, all they wanted was to have a family. They knew it wouldn't be an easy process, but they didn't expect anything like this. I certainly wouldn't have, because who would have guessed that the one person who's uniquely positioned to support prospective families and birth mothers who knows the process herself would be a straight-up liar, a crook. One of Tara's famous sayings, something that she would say to everybody all the time, was, I can't make this shit up. Yet she was making everything up. And now she'd finally have to face some consequences. That's after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. 
We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. In January of 2019, Tara was arrested and let out on bond. When she violated those terms, she was taken into custody in March. She was charged with 18 counts of wire fraud, which really only addressed some of her scheme. Wire fraud is basically a fraud that's carried out through some kind of electronic communication, like texting, emails, or phone calls. You gotta be kidding me. This woman invented birth mothers, and she's getting charged with wire fraud? It's like charging Al Capone with tax evasion. Once the FBI raided Tara's home and got her phone, Her messages revealed everything. They had texts of Tara instructing another woman to pretend to be a pregnant woman considering adoption. It should come as no surprise that Tara was determined to fight. She was going to go to trial. And then she ended up pleading guilty to two counts of wire fraud. The max amount of time she could receive behind bars was 10 years. We were all hoping for a lot more than what she got, but because there aren't any actual adoption laws for fraud or for scams, she's really, she, her only charge was wire fraud. There's really no law out there that says you can't invent a person, like a birth mother, and use them to collect money from other people. The prosecutors, they did what they could. They charged what the law permitted. And if there was another charge they could have brought against Tara, they would have. The judge would still need to sentence her. After a whole lot of rescheduling, the sentencing was finally fixed for February of 2020. Families came from all over the country. For many, it would be the first time they'd meet each other in person. They had an opportunity to submit a victim impact statement, which they could read in the courtroom. They'd be able to address Tara. As you can imagine, it was an extremely emotional day. The scope of Tara's scam was huge. 160 families from 24 different states were impacted. Damn. And through her scam, this woman made $2.1 million off of these good people. All money that was supposed to go to making these adoptions happen, to supporting birth mothers. And instead, Tara was just using it on herself. A lot of the families were still reeling from this, like Kyle and Adam. Even going into the sentencing, They were still all mixed up about Tara. We should have seen things, but we didn't because you're on a goal to create our family. She had a soul roped in because we were one of the lucky ones who had already adopted with her. Had we not had our son, after that first or second fail, I probably would have walked. I'd have been like, this is crazy. I I can't keep losing this money. But she already had her buy-in. Adam saw how she had targeted his family and used their friendship as a way to gain information. The fact that she was our adoption agency, we had conversations with her because, oh yeah, we got our adoption credit back. Oh yeah, I got my reimbursement from work. 
So you have these conversations, not thinking anything of it, but she turned around and manipulated that and used it. Now the pattern was clear. Whenever they got a little money, suddenly Tara would have a match for them. They saw now that Tara had been the opposite of a friend to them. She cheated them, and now they would let her know. I had the opportunity to give a victim statement in court at her sentencing, which honestly was probably what I needed to say what's on my mind and how I feel and just get it out there that we do know. You're not pulling it over our eyes anymore. We know what you did. The sentencing was six and a half hours. The judge encouraged each person to take their time. He allowed everyone to read their statement. For the people who couldn't make it, the court felt it was so important to hear their voices that they allowed them to phone in. We were back and forth about if we were going to go or not, and I'm so glad that we did. This is Teresa and Mike Matheny from the first episode. Everybody in the room basically has been manipulated by Tara. And so like, we're all sitting there waiting for the judge, being like, is he really going to give her the max from her plea? Because there's no cell phones or recording devices or anything. There's no way to truly understand the effect of mm-hmm. that day without having been there. So I'm like so grateful that we made the trip and we went out with some of the other families afterwards. And while it didn't erase the harm, it was cathartic. It was validating because the judge saw Tara for exactly who she was. The judge said exactly what he needed to for us to have a lot of closure to know that we're not crazy. That this is the worst case that he has ever seen. He would give her life if he could. Because the limitations of the court, it's the 10 years. It helped a lot of people. The judge really did tell her that this was the worst case he'd ever seen that he thought he'd seen the worst case of his life just a few months earlier, and he gave that guy life. He told Tara he wished he could switch her with that person, that he could give her life too. He also said this. The bottom line is the defendant in this matter is evil, and I have never said that before. It's true. There's no question in my mind that she is evil. He said it over and over again through the sentencing. Evil. He tried to get her placed in a maximum security prison, and he ordered Tara to read aloud every single victim impact statement once she was in prison. To make sure she did read them, he required her to record it. And he gave her the maximum amount permitted by the court. Ten years. And the judge recognized the extent of the trauma Tara had caused these folks. Something that a lot of people who haven't had the experience of trying to adopt just don't really get. And honestly, I don't want anybody else to get it. I don't need anybody else to go through this or to feel this pain or to do that. I would never wish that 100 years on somebody. Which is why they do need to come up with something to protect both the birth mothers and the adoptive parents. This isn't a one-sided thing. This is both sides. Because as much as she manipulated us, she manipulated the hell out of those women. What Tara had done was successfully take advantage of a system that's in desperate need of oversight. I think all of the legislators at state level need to go into their adoption code and rewrite it. They need to add to it. It needs to be much more complex. It needs to actually have real penalties written right into it. It needs to be much more strict. And on the federal level, I think that there needs to be somebody who has got a heart for adoption and they need to start writing a bill immediately. And it needs to get into Congress and it needs to be passed because it is very common in the adoption world to go across state lines. 
So the federal system really, I believe, can use a rewrite on the adoption scam situation so that they're not just getting charged with wire fraud. For families who worked with Tara, she gave them hope. And Tara knew this. She knew that in her position to match expecting women with hopeful people, she had a lot of power. And she used that to her advantage. She took the trust right out of the process, and it was already shaky because it's such a delicate thing. Private adoption, it's never for sure. For the families that have been impacted, the reason they continue to speak up is to advocate for better protections, to make sure something like this never happens to anyone else. There was such a long time there where I was questioning myself. Why was I brought to Michigan? Why would I have to go through these things? And I think that in this process, I found out for myself, like, if I hadn't signed on with Tara or started working with Tara, then maybe she would still continue to be doing what she was doing. You know, maybe she would still be out there hurting families and and birth moms. For the birth mothers, the abuse they suffered hasn't even really been recognized in court. A lot of moms were pretty upset about feeling that there was nothing that she got charged with that was specifically tailored to the crime she committed against them. Which is another reason why these wire fraud charges really just don't cut it. I mean, there's been no restitution for these birth mothers. With most cheats, when someone breaks the rules, they become a bad apple that gets all the attention, and they usually spoil it for everyone else. But that shouldn't ruin the possibility of what adoption is supposed to be. This is Talia Getting, the adoption attorney again. If there's one thing I could say at the very end, adoption is a beautiful thing. I was adopted. I have an adopted daughter. To me, one of the biggest things that makes me so angry at Carol Lee is that she took something that can be so beautiful and should be something that people can do and not have to worry about being scammed. And she just made it dirty. She made it into this baby selling business that was a scam. And I never want anybody to not go forward with adoptions because of what this one evil woman did. Because adoptions are a beautiful thing. You know, it's sad, but it never ceases to shock me what greed and narcissism can drive people to do. We use those words a lot, which almost makes them sound simple, but they're really not. They've got layers. And if this story is indicative of anything, it's just how powerful greed and narcissism can be. What they speak to is our need and our desire to validate ourselves. If the world tells you that a fancy car and a brand name bag means that you as an individual have worth, then you learn to associate your self-worth with these material things, these things that you feel like you need in order to feel valued. And people will do a lot to feel valuable. They'll manipulate others. They'll lie. They'll cause irreparable harm. They'll do basically anything to feel significant. Many lives in this story have been damaged by one person's greed and narcissism. And there are many more lives out there that have been damaged for the same reasons. It's a reminder that this desire to feel a sense of worth, when it's misguided and left unchecked, can fester and grow. And somewhere in that process, people can lose themselves. And before you know it, you're in front of a judge being called what you very well may have become. Evil. Evil.
Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. I've seen fraudsters that, you know, put their money through like some sort of business or something and they try to make it look clean, but that was not the case here. These guys had lots of funds and vehicles and properties associated with their actual names or companies. The fact that there was $2.8 million in a checking account from someone who's 26 years old, if that doesn't ring a red flag to the bank and the IRS, then I don't know what does. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>